welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Madden America podcast. This is your host for today, Ayurdhidhar, Assistant Professor of Psychology at Mount Mary University and a science news writer at MIA. If you've ever wondered what helps people survive and sometimes thrive despite abject adversity, even trauma, Today's podcast is for you. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Unger. Dr. Unger is the founder and director of the Resilience Research Center at Dalhousie University in Canada. He's also a family therapist and professor of social work, has received numerous awards for his work, has written and edited nearly 20 books and around 180 peer-reviewed articles. His work is very well-recognized across the globe and it spans cultures and centers on studying resilience amongst marginalized children, families, and adult populations involved with child welfare, mental health services, refugees and immigrants, etc. Dr. Anger, welcome to Mad in America. A real pleasure to do this. Thank you for the invitation. All right. So let's get into this. So the dominant view of resilience in the side disciplines, I remember from my time, has been that resilience is something, you know, uh, similar to grit and perseverance. It's inside people. But you have written extensively about this sociological and ecological view of resilience. Could you tell us what it is and maybe give us an example? Yeah, sure. Well, if we think about resilience, so often people just refer to individual qualities. And they miss the fact that a lot of those qualities are activated or facilitated by the environments around us. So let me, let me get in a really concrete way. After a major natural disaster, say um, there was a recent huge wildfire in an area of Canada, uh, just northern Alberta, 85,000 people were evacuated, 2,500 structures were burned to the ground. And you have these massive numbers of people displaced to shelters, you know, literally hours drives away from their community. What caught my attention was that as we were trying to address things like the potential for trauma after a major disruption to people's lives like that, the banks and the insurance companies had learned from past events like that a better way to deal with their customers. And what they actually did was they took their bankers and their insurance adjusters and they put them onto those, you know, those buses that the rock and roll bands use to tour around. And they basically had these people go to the shelters where these, the, the, the people who were displaced were actually there. And they began to make sure that they got access to their banking information, their bank accounts, and best of all, the insurance adjusters immediately started the process of getting people's insurance claims going. And people were rebuilding in their community within six months. Now, contrast that, if you think about it, to, you know, to things like uh, Hurricane Katrina, other you know, Hurricane Dis- uh, Sandy, other major disasters across your, you know, all different countries. And you see that when we want to talk about preventing mental health crises following a significant disaster in our lives, you have to ask yourself your question, (laughs) do you send in the psychologists Mm -hmm. or the insurance adjusters as your first line of of intervention? And of course, the right answer from a resilience point of view is you actually send in the insurance adjusters. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if you want to make people more optimistic about the future, you don't just simply stand them in front of a mirror and say, think positive thoughts. Mm -hmm. Our resilience is tied up in whether or not that desire to be positive meets an environment that actually makes it possible for us to experience the kind of success that we want to have in the near future. Right. Um, That's a fantastic example. Thank you. It also makes me think of, you know, as people begin to rebuild, they also enter the same communities and live with with the same people that they were living with. So they get to have similar relations that they were earlier kind of connected with and how important that could be. And that's exactly the point of a more social and ecological interpretation of resilience is you see the way I've almost described it is, is a a, a domino effect. So I was reading, writing something called change your world, a a book recently. And I really tried to get people to begin to think about that. There's no one factor that works for everybody in different contexts, but if we can get people thinking about this domino effect of, you know, if my insurance adjuster gets me the money I need to rebuild, then that puts me back into my community. And we know that people heal from trauma better by being back in stable relationships. It also creates a sense of routine or predictability to my life, which of course inspires our optimism and people who are more optimistic, we know, show a propensity towards less 
uh, depression, less anxiety, and they also tend to have larger social networks. They gamble more, but that's sort of the negative side <laughs> of optimism, but we're not getting into that. Um, the point is, is that if we can create environments rich in opportunities to bring out people's best selves, then it's a cascade of interactions. And, and a lot of the work that I, I lead internationally looks at this cascade of systems or resilience factors that occur between systems. And that's really becomes now how almost everyone who's seriously studying resilience has moved away from just this idea of individual grit or mindfulness. Not that those aren't positive and helpful, don't get me wrong, but in terms of really helping people respond to risk and stress, we also need to think about the context in which people are adapting. So um, let me ask you this then. Why do you think has it has it been traditionally that so much of our focus has been in the side disciplines, at least on the individual, in research, in academia, but also as a larger culture? Uh, why has it been kind of difficult to move away from that? I mean, there was a whole positive psychology movement. And again, I'm not saying there is anything wrong with that, but the, there were some ethical issues with that, absolutely. So why has it stuck around so strongly, this narrative that it's all in the individual when, when something like what you say and the minute you say it, hey, you know, insurance adjusters are just as important, sounds like, oh my God, why didn't we think about this, these structural determinants? There's a few things there. Um, first of all, I do think some of the positive psychologists, even Martin Seligman, who sort of led that movement into existence, revisited some of his earlier assumptions. And if you look at some of his later work, he began to acknowledge that to flourish really required communities and contexts and good government and other systems around us. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who's done all the work on mindfulness-based stress reduction and you know, demonstrating neuroplasticity, has actually increasingly acknowledged that you know, if we want to create a mindful society, it's about also creating mindfulness in our politicians and our government structures. So there's a drift towards at least acknowledging that change. Why is it so persistent, though, that, you know, if you're on Oprah, you're still talking about resilience as, you know, my individual story is because it's kind of it's literally in the water of our of our of our common discourse as a Western society that we think about the individual autonomy. Herbert Hoover, 1928, in the midst of that, you know, the, the, the booming economy of the United States makes a speech about rugged individualism in the United States, which kind of was true if you were white middle-class, heterosexual, able-bodied. I'm not sure rugged individualism really applied to everybody else in the United States, you know, at that time, but, but let's just cut him some slack on that particular identity, that that, that idea of, of individual grit could produce positive outcomes is just kind of part of our, our cultural norm. We talk about even adolescents moving towards independence. We talk about the independence of, of individuals. Whereas actually what we see is a more of like a teeter-totter. And the teeter-totter I see in my head when I think about resilience is that as risk on one side increases, so the dangers that we face, the, the complexity of our mental health challenges, the more resources, the more qualities we need to cope. So it's kind of like it's always going to be in balance. Um, and I think sometimes we've forgotten that, that most people, even if you think about the adverse childhood experience studies, which were done by Vince Felitti uh, and uh, Robert Anda and others, in which they kind of said, you know, here's a list of 10 bad things that happen to children when they're younger and all the mental and physical health problems that these things like child abuse and your parents separating and a parent going to jail, all of these things have a, a long-term impact on our well-being. But if you think about their, their sample was largely kind of taken from people who had healthcare insurance mm -hmm. and, and were already sort of functioning well. So we just constantly want to think about our own individual capacities to overcome when in fact we are stronger together. You know, that is, is really what the, the science of resilience teaches us that we need to be paying attention to cultural factors and, and other external factors that are beyond us. So this reminds me of like of trauma theory in its current form. And, and we know trauma theory has been really useful, but it's also become rather reductionistic in recent days that everything can be traced to trauma or that a traumatic event automatically leads to some kind of a pathology. Have you like considered this, this argument that uh, 
horrible, awful, challenging, traumatic things happen to people? And have you seen that it always automatically leads to pathology or are there protective factors or contexts that we can take into account? So because yeah, that's been my personal list thing has been like, um, I, I really love trauma theory. And then I saw it become increasingly reductionistic over the years. And I was like, one thing is not the answer for everything. <laughs> Just... I think that's exactly, we're going, I think as a field, we're going actually in the opposite direction now. That, that notion that a single factor uh, like trauma can predict a particular outcome, or for that matter, a particular protective factor. There's a whole uh, group read, led by uh, a German scholar, Raphael Kalish and his team, um, that kind of wants to sort of argue that how we attribute our experience. So if, you know, do we blame ourselves? Do we blame others? It's like our brains filter our external experiences and that produces resilience. It's all based on that filtering. And I'm sort of of the, of the mind. And, and I think where most of the field is sort of going is saying, well, hang on a minute. While that is one of the mechanisms, there's lots of other things that I can trigger. Let's face it. I can take a child who doesn't believe that the future is very optimistic and I can create a more facilitative environment in their classroom, give them hope for learning, give them a positive mentor, a teacher, give them uh, economic support to go on to college or post-secondary education. I can do all those things. And I will shift their attribution of saying whether or not they have any hope of being successful in life. So we're coming around to this uh, notion that trauma can't be explained by any single uh, mechanism. And I think on the resilience side, we're understanding more systems are tied together. Let me, let me, let me kind of ballpark this for everybody listening is I would say that if you look at any traumatized population, about 70% seem to recover. And I'm just generalizing the research here, but about 70% show an ability to what we typically say is bounce back. But that bouncing back is always occurring because people have access to extended kinship networks. They have jobs, housing, stable governments. They find food, a, a faith community that they reconnect with. All of those things are in people's lives. And so when we go through, whether it's the burning down of our home or a tsunami or whatever, or, or just simply a, 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 you know, sexual violence or whatever, those things are there for us. And about 70% of us seem to slide through life and eventually find our footing. Now, that leaves about 30% of us needing extra help. And usually, if you look at the outcomes from really any psychotherapy, it's, let's face it, it's about 60 to 70% effective. Or 50%, 40%, 80%. Not, you know, like, there's there's always been that, outcomes being measured two weeks into it, six weeks. So there's a whole you know thing there. Yeah. That's the game. So let's assume, let's just say it's maybe if you take another 30% of the sample needs some extra help, let's assume that two-thirds of them are going to respond to whatever you provide as a good quality intervention. Mm -hmm. That leaves about 10% of people who are probably going to struggle. Now, the good news is that time heals. If you look at the large longitudinal studies of people who, you know, had a really bad start in life, whether that's Emmy Werner studies or Robert Sampson's studies or whatever, what you tend to see is that over time, people find the connections. And when, when, when um, Samson went back, Samson and Loeb did the study in which they looked at a sample that was begun in the 1930s of delinquent boys, and they traced them, 500 of these boys, all the way into the like, 60s and 70s, using a data set that had been started before they were, I think, even alive. But what they actually found was a lot of these youngsters, young men, eventually found military service, whether, whether you agree with that or not, but they found military service as a way of grounding them, for creating routine, a sense of contribution to their societies. They also found stable relationships. Now, to be fair, they never interviewed the, the, it was all heterosexual assumptions in the sample and everything. They never interviewed the women who had to raise these delinquent young fellows into sort of decent men and what kind of toll that took on them and their relationships. But the sort of the end result was that over time, even that 10% of people who didn't respond, didn't have the resources to cope on their own and didn't respond initially to a therapeutic intervention, such as a, some sort of intervention that these young men were uh, exposed to. In the end, they ended up kind of finding the resources that they needed mm -hmm. to cope with life and, and, and to survive. And I might even say potentially thrive. This reminds me actually of Sebastian Junger's work. He's, he's actually, you know, a war journalist, but he's written about American soldiers in the military and how they find it's like a certain sense of camaraderie there. And it's when they come back that 
that things get worse because while they're there, they have this really strong sense of routine and community and being with each other. Robert Stoller called it like brothers in darkness, I think. Coming back to an alienating life where nobody understands you, that's what triggers often a lot of problems. I could give you a parallel example of that, which is refugees. A lot of, you know, we have this assumption that the trauma that refugees experience starts back in their when, you know, whatever horrific event caused them to flee. And definitely, let's not underestimate that, the impact of that. But longer term, the camp experience is often one, especially for children, which has more my focus, of stability. Uh, I mean, if you're a five-year-old and, you know, your parents are telling you to go to bed there, whether you're in a tent in a refugee camp, I mean, I'm not trying to, I don't want to, you know, please don't take this as I'm making light of this in any way, shape or form. But the child's perception of that experience can actually be quite stable in the same way as they're going to a school or whatever. What we actually hear is that it's the resettlement process, often for teenagers, especially, that's extremely traumatizing. Imagine you're a, a, a 16 year old, always, you know, going through all those sort of normative life crises. And suddenly you're in a land that you don't speak the language. You're ostracized. You're marginalized because of your race, your, your, your language. You're, you're, you're suddenly academically completely incompetent because you're in a new place, a new language. You're, you're, you know, if you, you have no prospects for the future, it's, you think about all those conditions. That create the trauma. And therefore, if you think about it, if I could the, flip this around to resilience, the systems that have to be in place to resolve these problems have to be as complex as the problems that were causing them. So you're talking about, for instance, if for that refugee child, do they have access to their school records so that they can create continuity in their learning? Do they have access to language classes? Are they being racially picked, uh, marginalized or you know, experience racism in their new host community? I heard, I'll give you a small example of hope. When we brought into, when we in Canada, we brought in literally, uh, initially, right after the Syrian crisis, we brought in 43,000 Syrian refugees. About 55% of them were children. There was a school board in um, one part, one community that wanted to make these children feel like the transition would be easier. So what they did was they taught the children in the elementary school a few words of Arabic because Arabic was not the normal language that was spoken. And then they filmed the children saying to, in Arabic to these children that were going to come to their school eventually, you know, welcome, and my name is, and this is my teacher. And then they videoed the classroom to all basically create a context that was more familiar and accommodating to the child that was coming in. And when I hear about initiatives like that, in conjunction, of course, with safe school policies and, uh, you know, trauma-informed therapies for the children who are really in that 10% who are not responding well to any other interventions, you get all the constellation of systems working. You have that, that potential to, to, to give a child that sense of, of wonder, connections, acceptance. Um, uh, you're, you're literally sowing the seeds for a child to make that transition much easier. Thank you so much for that. And I just from, from personal example, I can completely see how that works. So um, my family and community are Kashmiris. We are from Kashmir, which is in India. And about around 89 is when we had to migrate. There was this huge refugee crisis. And we moved from Kashmir, like within our own country, but we had to like run in the middle of the night and stuff. And I know like, it's like there haven't been really high rates of PTSD or psychosis that have been seen amongst my community. None of those. And often, like psychologists like to say, it's because Kashmiris are resilient people. But if you look at that, um, we had immense sympathy from the whole nation. We spoke the same language. We looked the same. Um, so we had that continuity. We were also upper caste. And there, are, there is a lot of privilege that comes in India from being upper caste. And there were like reservations, what in U.S. they call affirmative action, that was set up for co in colleges for, uh, you know, kids to like enter. So... Uh, within a generation or two, Kashmiris were thriving, and that includes me sitting here in the U.S., you know, like with a whatever. Um, but those resources, I like to remind my parents that when they sometimes say, oh, you know, like the recent side disciplines have kind of entered and they're like, it's because we're very resilient. I'm like, yeah, we also had a bunch of resources and a similar culture and language. And all of those factors were really important for us. And for people who didn't get them, they definitely struggled for sure. Thank you. I did not know that. Sorry. So th uh, thanks for sharing that. And, and it's, 
it is exactly that story that I hear in variations um, that people find these diaspora. And let's face it, it it's, you know, it, whether it was the Irish diaspora in New York City uh, back, you know, a century and a half ago that allowed immigrants from Ireland to settle quite quickly and to have a certain economic foothold in the United States, or um, more recently, you know, as you say, any of any other diaspora that has been established in, you know, in another country to sort of basically create the conditions for, well, frankly, for coping and resilience and flourishing. And th those economic networks, um, even something like a, a faith community, sometimes people get, they, they, we get very focused on the idea of a belief in God mm -hmm. as somehow the resilience factor. And I certainly don't want to necessarily, you know, enter the, the, the spiritual debate here, but what I also notice is when I meet people who are part of spiritual communities, faith communities, is that they also are really tapped into an amazing number of social supports, mm -hmm. instrumental supports, economic supports. They have communities that will frequent their businesses. They, they can, they can find a plumber, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, like, like, you know, you get information on mortgage rates. Um, there's so much that flows and those things coming back to the more the psychology of this, those things create a sense of well-being, a sense of, of belonging, attachment, um, empathy from others. Um, one feels hopeful for the future. It gives you a sense that the, uh, there's opportunities around you. Um, uh, you know, if you begin to sort of tick the boxes on what we understand are the things that get us through a crisis and counter the trauma story, we know that these are elements that are triggered through these associations. All right. So tell me this thing. Um, how did you reach this social ecological understanding of resilience? Um, was it like a personal journey or is it because, you know, social work as a discipline is far more conducive to that than a lot of other side disciplines? Well, I got, yes, it, it's a, it, you know, I, I, I think I chose social work and I've worked a lot with community psychologists. I think they share a lot of similarities there and community psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. um, uh, because I think there's a, a certain grit to the work. You do get you know, a little bit more, uh, as, as someone once described it, you get your hands a little more dirty, uh, uh, in terms of the actual contact with communities. I'm not sure if that metaphor is great, but I'll let it, let it slide there for a second or two. Um, but the point is, is that, you know, people tend to engage. You're not just in an office based setting. And I think you see people's lives as they are lived, mm -hmm. which opens up a certain appreciation. That's how I came into this. I was, I was, um, I did a lot of sort of early work around, say, working with people with chronic mental illnesses uh, through clubhouse models, which were an early idea of getting, you know, people with chronic and persistent mental illnesses, schizophrenia, to actually have housing and a place to go and a meaningful opportunity to contribute to their communities. Um, very empowering models. I also worked with a lot of young people and began to talk about it, these issues of empowerment. And that led me into a conversation in the late 80s and 90s around resilience. But maybe it was the lens I brought that it just always seemed to be contextual factors. I mean, if I was talking to a kid and I, very meaningfully, I remember working with one girl very early in my, in my career as I was thinking about this stuff. And I was trying to find out why she was doing better than expected. She was out of a horrific past. She seemed to be going to school, not doing drugs and all these other things. And I was having this conversation with her and she looked at me and I was trying to basically put it all on her shoulders. Oh, you're so strong. You're so amazing. You're, you know, and she looked at me like, you don't get it. What don't I get? Like, no, but I also had, I met a good, you know, a teacher really inspired me or somebody helped me. Like she was decades ahead of me with that. I would eventually catch up to her. And then I began to look for those patterns. Instead of looking just for the individual qualities, I began to ask questions about the, the processes of engagement with resources and systems around. And that's led me right out to, um, I, I love working with architects. Uh, Terry Peters in Toronto talks about super architecture, buildings that don't just, you know, make us feel, uh, you know, have potential to help us, but they actually actively trigger well-being through their use of light and space and shape and design. Um, if you think about that with social service networks or the way we, we reach out to vulnerable communities that are made more vulnerable because of the, the, the factors, you suddenly see patterns, even something as awful as youth suicide, um, 
when you look at, say, in our indigenous communities uh, where I am, and so I think both in the United States and Canada and Australia, one of the saddest truths is that rates of suicide are so high after that cultural genocide, which is perpetrated against those communities by the residential school systems. The lingering after effects of that are going across generations. But when you start talking about resilience in those communities, an interesting fact is that not every community that's Indigenous has youth suicide problems. And when, when you look at, the, say, the work of um, Crystal Lawn and Mark Chandler, that you know, a couple of decades old now, but they began to look at communities and distinguish which had rates of suicide that were high and which, which that were low. And they found very cleverly that patterns in suicide rate, sorry, in communities where the youth suicides rates were very low, they found things like women were more likely to be involved in the governance of the community. They found that there was a volunteer fire department, which of course speaks to the level of cohesion in a community. They found that the community was actively involved in land claim settlements, or that there was a cultural space dedicated to, to cultural celebrations, not a converted school gym, but an actual dedicated space. So when you begin to think about all those factors, you begin to move away from just pathologizing a group of people, you know, that, that essentializing conversation we have, oh, wow, you're a refugee, you must be traumatized. Oh, you're a person who has experienced this, you must be. And we move instead to better and better and more nuanced assessments of risk factors. Because when you actually understand a person's risk, and if I could, their resources, you begin to get closer and closer to understanding which protective factors are going to have the most poignancy in a particular individual's life. Right. And uh, this, this ties in neatly to what you've repeatedly said, that both resources and risks and everything about our conversation here has to be contextual and culturally sensitive. So, you know, you've emphasized that the resources we provide to people, if they're not culturally relevant, they, they could be just useless. So uh, could you tell us, like, how how... Usually, how do we, we've already talked about how in the global north, we normally think about resilience, but how do some other cultures think about resilience? And uh, can you think of like an example yeah. or a story? Yeah. <laughs> oh, many. One of the best one was when, when, when I began to really dig into this research uh, and we were, I was in like working in 14 communities in 11 countries, five continents, and we were sort of trying to understand resilience of, of high risk, you know, young people who were in context where a lot of young people weren't doing well, but we were trying to find the young people who were doing well. And one of the countries that we were working in at that point was Gambia. And I mean, we're, you know, we also had the United States, Canada, China, Hong, you know, China, uh, Thailand, India, I mean, just globally. But I, when we actually began to ask people locally in Gambia, what they, what was a measure of a resilient child? And very vividly, they said, well, a resilient child is one who grows up and understands that their economic well-being and education and everything else is very important to their parents' uh, long-term retirement plans. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, wow, that's an interesting take on a resilience child. So I remember coming back to Canada, and I have five children, and I told my kids, that a resilient child is one that looks after their parents when they retire and that your economic well-being is like my success, right? And they, I, I still remember my daughter looking at me with that sort of blank stare of, you've got to be kidding. Because culturally, my children have no expectation. And it's just a situation I'm on the radio. I am, I am, I'm Caucasian. I'm white. I'm, I'm, middle class, upper middle class. I'm, I'm living in Canada, democracy. I'm able-bodied. I'm heterosexual. Like, okay, I have like the, I have stacked the deck for advantages, right? I just want to sort of situate myself there on that conversation. Now, now there have been some other bad things happen. I write about some of those things and, but that's, that's another, in a sense, a storyline. I do not expect my children to support me, right? I hope they visit me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but, but, but in other contexts and cultures, the measure of a resilient child is a measure of whether or not that child is a contributing member of the society and specifically to their kinship or their family network. But there are other stories. I mean, when we worked in Tanzania with young women who were, had had a child, so we're talking teenage pregnancies, what their resilience was tied up to was not only a positive attitude towards the future and motivation to make their lives better and to look after their child, 
but also whether or not they had access to a microcredit scheme, which in, means like a three, you know, a one hundred to three hundred dollar U.S. grant. And in Tanzania, those grants were often used by young women to set up small stalls in the marketplace to sell vegetables or some other goods. When we were working with teenage moms in the same study, we were working with teenage moms in Winnipeg in central Canada, very cold place in the winter. What they talked about was that their success and their resilience and ability to cope and succeed as a young teen mom was tied up with whether or not um, the school that they attended had a daycare. So education versus microcredit and employment or entrepreneurship in Tanzania versus an educational pathway in Canada. The other good story we heard was that this one young woman in the study said that she was doing very well because her teacher had bought her a sled to make her possible for her to, to take her child to the school. So she basically had a, you know, like literally one of those pull sleds you put over the snow. Now, if you're an extremely poor child living in a, you know, a extremely rough situation with your child, even that, you know, a $50 sled is going to make a potential difference in your ability to navigate your community. And as I say, you know, our resilience is partly about our ability to navigate and to negotiate or to get the resources we need given to us in ways that make sense to us. So talking about the resources that we're given, right, uh, since you're you just mentioned that sometimes services that we have don't reach children and um, other times they do, but they're just ineffective. And there has been a tendency to kind of look at the child in the past and be like, well, you know, their personality kind of people have a certain type of personality and sometimes there is no openness to experience or maybe they're not empathetic enough. What have you observed when children don't respond well to services, children who've had some really challenging you know, past? What is usually happening? What's usually happening is that there is a mismatch. And I always get the questions on, well, you know, two children from the same family, one turns out, you know, is a stellar star and the other is, you know, on drugs sort of thing or whatever. And often people want to look for that, 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 what is that catalyst? You know, what is that, what is that moment in time? Having done many long case studies with folks, uh, you know, a lot of research on this, what I tend to see is if you ask enough questions, you tend to find the catalysts that move people towards resilience or potentially into more danger. And you're right, actually. It's a bit of a combination of personalities. Um, I always give the example that people can often understand is, you know, the the outgoing, gregarious child that's very noisy and, you know, you know whatever is in a, is growing up in a family that loves to go camping and constantly outdoors and, you know, building things and everything that child just fits in like a, you know, a hand in glove. You put that same rambunctious child into a, um, a high rise apartment in a very studious family that requires quiet and can't deal with any stress. And that child just constantly feels out of place and their energy basically feeds them into a diagnosis of ADHD because they don't kind of, you know, that sort of um, creativity, uh, exceptional, uh, almost distractedness that might function in a different environment suddenly becomes very dysfunctional in another environment. Not that, you know, some kids obviously do have ADHD and it is beneficial to get that diagnosis because it, you know, it helps. But there is something about the context in which our, you know, our personality or our opportunity. So a child that has a certain kind of personality or a certain set of talents that are somewhat you know, biological, genetically predisposed to, still has to meet an environment that acknowledges that. A teacher that says, wow, you, I didn't realize you had a good voice. Did you check out with, you know, if the band needs a singer, you know, um, uh, uh, an opportunity to use those talents, um, uh, a, a, a world that says just because your skin color or your sexual orientation, that we're not going to sort of push you to the side. Um, and so suddenly there's a dance here. And I think that when we come to services for children, sometimes that dance is not done very well. It's kind of like um, the way I describe it sometimes is a game of mirrors. Like, you know, you, you, if, you, if you've ever seen people play a game of mirrors, you both put your hands up and you work palm to palm. And then one of you leads and the other person has to follow your lead. If you moved your left foot, they have to move their uh, left foot, you know. Wait, I think I got that wrong. Like, anyway, yeah. Uh, but remember each you, other. Remember each other. And you get the idea here that somehow... We follow and we lead. What I've often seen happen with children is that we offer them whatever we have available as opposed to necessarily negotiating for what they actually need. So a child comes in and is fighting. I recently worked with a young fella and he was doing a lot of fighting, getting into a lot of trouble because he was 
he was kind of, he was being racially, you know, disrespected by called names in his community and he was fighting. And the courts actually referred him to me because they felt like he needed anger management. Now I can do anger management training with kids. I just felt it was ethically wrong to take a kid who was basically fighting because he was being racially dissed to then try and tell him to basically, what do I tell him? Next time a kid calls you the, uh, you know, a word, you just take three deep breaths and sort of self-regulate or do you punch him in the face? I mean, I, you know, not, I couldn't tell him to punch him in the face because that's wrong. I'm a therapist. I don't really promote violence in my clients, of course. But the solution wasn't just to tell him to self-regulate. The solution actually was tell him to go and get angry. And to, but, but to channel that anger by learning from his community. So we brought in his uncle who had to deal with racism. We brought in, we talked about other members of his community. We, we strategized strategies for, for ad, self-advocacy and group advocacy. He, he began to think about other ways of coping, including eventually uh, finding a, a larger peer group of, 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 of people who looked like him essentially so that he, he would have a, a more, um, a larger group of people to protect him from those kinds of racial slurs. Those are, those are partly, you know, obviously we were talking about his identity and, and, and how he saw himself. And I was trying to get him to obviously not keep himself in jail by beating people up. I mean, that was obviously the goal, but the pathway to that was highly contextual and involved not only changes in cognitions, mm-hmm. And his belief in, you know, obviously I didn't, you know, whatever, but also changes in structures around him as best I could as his therapist. Now I was still in an office-based setting. I don't want people to listen and say, well, what were you spending all your time outside the office advocating? Not entirely. I made a few phone calls to, you know, to align him with other organizations and stuff, but most of it was about conversations with him and his extended family coming into the sessions to talk about how they cope effectively with racism and what are some of the strategies which are are, are appropriate. Um, I mean, if you're talking about any kind of, uh, whether it's um, a, a, a different kind of ableness that, you know, you have, you have, uh, I, 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 you know, so uh, in each case, basically what you're trying to do, of course, is dance or negotiate with someone so that sometimes I'm leading as a therapist into new territory, helping people find new identities, new, new ways of coping. But sometimes I'm also listening to the child and the family and saying, what fits best for you in your particular world what is meaningful to you so it seems like a part of this is uh, recognizing that what might what might appear to be problematic behavior are also at the same time survival strategies and secondly that uh changing the systems is also a huge part of this and not just like changing personal cognitions and you know um emotional states so this takes me to my next question uh, in the side discipline, especially when we're working with youth or children, um, have you observed like us making mistakes, especially when we see younger people in, in very challenging situations? So one of the big issues recently has been the overdrugging and the overdiagnosis amongst kids. And this is uniquely true in the U.S. Um, and, you know, you work as a family therapist and you're a social work expert. So have you recognized some of these mistakes that we often make with kids? If I had to, it's a great question. And if I had to sort of just, you know, highlight one aspect where I think we make the biggest error is that we don't assess the risk exposure prior to the intervention. And more and more I've been writing about and, and, and demonstrating this notion of something called differential impact. Interesting, my, my colleagues who are epigeneticists have been focused on this thing called differential susceptibility. So we know, for instance, that people with different genetic profiles mm-hmm. uh, and, and patterns of gene methylation will actually respond differently to interventions like drug and alcohol counseling, that type of thing. Now, that's kind of cool, except I can't really change genes like, you know, it's a kind of a hard thing to wrap my head around. But what I am understanding is that I can change um, interventions to basically tailor them better to a particular risk profile. So if, if, I, can, if I can enter um, a, a situation with a child. So, for instance, um, a while back I was, I was in a supervision role with a psychologist and um, – wonderful worker. And she, she had a, a, a young, a young fellow who'd been badly sexually victimized by his father. 
when he was about three going on four years old. Consistent. The mom was, was, the, was actually the primary uh, bread, uh, economic engine for the family and was outside the home. And the father had just abused the child sexually for a very long period of time. And eventually, though, this primary caregiver to the child, though, still, eventually goes to jail. And the trauma-informed uh, play therapy begins. And the, work, this, the psychologist was saying, you know, she, she had a great connection with this child, but she was really struggling to get the child to actually talk about the trauma of, of the sexual victimization. And I said to her, well, let's think about this for a second here. What is the trauma? And she was kind of leaning towards the sexual abuse. And I said, I don't think so. Now, look. When that child is eight, maybe 10, and definitely at 12, that child, that, that, the embodied memories of that sexual victimization will come back, no doubt. But at age five, the trauma that child experienced, I'm going to bank on, is actually the loss of the primary caregiver. His father left him to go to jail. And my, my point is, is that the therapy that, the, that this, this uh, psychologist was offering was actually the consistency of every week she met with this kid. He came in, he played in the sandbox with the trucks and did all the play therapy stuff. And he loved the fact that he had this doting adult who was focused on him because let's face it, mom was going crazy. Mom was so upset. Mom was you know, going through a separation, divorce, economic challenges. Her husband was in jail. Um, the, the shame related to everything. I mean, mom was not functioning well. So this boy had found a caring adult who focused on him. And the intervention wasn't actually about the trauma. The intervention was healing the, 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 the fracture of the attachments. Mm-hmm. But, but I th- it, once the psychologist, once she saw that, she actually, you know, she was comfortable much more with going slower with the boy and not moving towards the trauma conversations about the sexual victimization and much more about the loss of the father. Mm-hmm. Now, that's kind of an elaborate example, but it happens in the smallest ways. When a kid comes in, I work a lot with homeless youth and, you know, are we talking about stabilizing their housing mm-hmm. or are we talking about, uh, you know, uh, uh, about getting into some sort of cognitive um, uh, therapy that works more on some sort of, uh, you know, misattribution of their experiences or something like that. And, and, you know, Often this is like, if we can get down to actually following our clients' leads and doing the things that they need to do first. So to make this very concrete, what we've come up with is a, is a program called R2. I was asked so often for a curriculum to address resilience that was more balanced and more social and ecological. And eventually we got the staff together and we came up with what, what focuses on an R2. And R2 refers to, of course, rugged qualities and resources. But it's really about making sure that we match people's risk profiles. Mm-hmm. So you're thinking about, you know, a, a child who's experiencing homelessness versus a child who has a lot of stability and has a learning challenge. Very different profiles of risk, depending on the family and the community and the resources. And, and therefore, are you going to address something like the child's, oh, I just can't do it. I live in, you know, I have a great family. I have a great school. I have all the resources, but I just don't believe in myself. Well, that's a cognitive rugged quality that we're going to work on. Mm-hmm. Same, same learning challenge, but in a child who's, you know, very precariously housed, whose parents are struggling with addiction issues, um, who doesn't have access to a good school, you, you, you start talking to that child about a learning challenge. You can't just simply say, hey, here's a can-do attitude, get over it. I'm also going to have to think about the whole context in which that child is, is, is living and maybe finding them a mentor and a supportive place to do their homework and an extended school program. Those things are going to be the catalyst first and foremost before the psychological intervention, much like I started in this conversation with the idea that, you know, insurance adjusters are sometimes better than psychologists or clinical social workers at the beginning. I'm not saying later, because we know also that those people who had their houses lost, 10%, 20% of them actually needed psychological counseling as a consequences of what they'd experienced during the wildfires. But not everyone did. Right. So I think you're pointing to, and you've written about this, the complexity of pre-deciding what is a positive outcome and what is a protective factor. And uh, and if for the in the example of this child, um, 
who was sexually abused, the, the idea that we have, and, and this is culturally specific, that verbalization of trauma is the primary way of, you know, healing trauma, which is not necessarily always true, um, especially when you go cross-culturally and look at other ways of doing that. So the, if, if we don't have, if we don't allow ourselves to see the nuance and the complexity and, you know, and, and all of these things, a lot of harm can be done. So let me just bring us to our next question then. Um, You've written most recently about, edited a book about multi-systemic resilience and talked about this conversation between disciplines, right? Because there have been just all of these different disciplines talking about resilience, but it's kind of like echo chamber within <laughs> it. And uh, so uh, what is this idea and how do you think different disciplines can contribute to kind of this thing of multi-systemic resilience? What would it look like in the ideal world? <laughs> well, what it actually looks like is um, when we did, we recently, we're now doing a big study on uh, communities that depend on the oil and gas industry. Because of course, as we decarbonize our economy, I think sometimes what we're forgetting is of course, that those communities that have been going through economic boom and bust cycles for, for decades are going to have to cope with massive dis dis disruptions. Now that, that, is a good for me. I'm. I'm. Those communities are teaching us a lot about multi-systemic resilience because what we're doing is we're literally measuring everything from a biological stress marker in young people like hair cortisol, up through their psychological state, right through their uh, interactions with their families, economic conditions. We've we've graphed economic price of world price of oil uh, because every time that dips or goes up, it changes the dynamics inside families whether or not your one of your parents is going to be working in another community, whether or not you're going to have money for uh, to join the little league or play hockey that year. Um, is your housing going to be substandard or not? So we're understanding that everything from the green spaces in a community to recreational spaces to um, our, a child's decisions, for instance, in South Africa, where one of the studies, the studies in Canada, South Africa, Russia, other countries, when we begin to understand that man, a child will literally d decide on their career paths based on, well, frankly, the world price of oil, mm -hmm. which actually has like a filter and a cascade effect. So when we begin to think about taking away those jobs and diversifying the economies of these towns, that is also going to have a tectonic shift in terms of the well-being of not only those families, but in a, indirectly and or directly even on the children themselves. So my point is this multi-systemic idea began to sort of, I began to sort of work first on, you know, the biological sciences, the psychological sciences, and I moved into the social sciences. And then I began to hook up with what are called uh, uh, basically social ecologists or ecologists. And suddenly I found in, in their work, uh, Carl Folk and others out of Stockholm, that they were talking about resilience as of, of our human interactions with, with, with the networks around us. So for instance, if you want to stop poaching, and you want to make sure that an eco a fragile ecological system like th that sustains the, the white rhino, you don't just think about literally putting up a fence or, you know, um, uh, uh, making sure that the, 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 the rhinos breed and reproduce. You have to talk about the economic incentives of the communities nearby to stop poaching mm -hmm. and empowerment of those communities to see that the resource of those animals is greater than the the, the short-term gain of, of the actual, what the poachers pay. So you begin now, so my conversations with people began to become more and more systemic. Even I began to work with computer scientists who talk about information systems and, and everything else about, you know, do we, do we understand um, uh, uh, these kinds of things? How do, how do you get airplanes to fly? Well, they're not just about technology. They're also about human interfaces with human systems. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, you begin to sort of get all these uh, uh, different aspects of our lives, right up from our buildings and the natural environments, influencing how we think and feel. But it works the other way as well. Our, our, we know that our microbiome, what our gut bacteria is, uh, if you look at John Cryan's work and others, that is having an influence on our ability, our immune systems, which then have an ability to make us better able to withstand stress. But let's face it, what's in our gut? is a function of whether or not our environments are rich in healthy bacteria, whether or not we have a pet, whether or not we have a food, or do we live in a food wasteland? Many communities, for instance, in, in your country and mine, 
our food wastelands, people cannot access because the transportation systems are inadequate or they're too poor or their jobs do not pay enough money for them to actually adequately access good, healthy food, which then would change in sense their microbiome, which then has a cascade effect on their psychological systems, which you think about it would probably then create different family dynamics, including opportunities for training jobs and, every, and the economy. Now, if I can walk you like I just hopscotched like over, you know, over, over, you know, hopscotched over rocks in a, in a river sort of thing to get to the other side very lightly. But my point is, is that as I began to talk to these other folks, I began to hear stories which were sort of metaphorically the same. And I actually wrote a paper in a, a journal called Ecology and Society um, in which I basically kind of reviewed all of these systems and all of the different patterns that make us resilient. And I could identify a lot of commonalities, things like, for instance, whether you're talking about psychological decisions that make us resilient or ecological systems, we all have trade-offs, right? If, you know, if I, if I decide that I'm going to listen to my mother and, and, and become a doctor, you know, <laughs> do whatever is culturally appropriate, right? High expectation of immigrant families or whatever, right? Um, and, and, uh, I had a little bit of that d- deep in my past, whatever. And, you know, okay. So, that has a consequence maybe if I'm not, you know, maybe pursuing my artistic passions or something like that. So each of these systems has a, has a sort of a, a, a fall through or a trade-off. Just like basically when I privilege one environmental system, right? I protect that particular species. Inadvertently, I also uh, do harm to another species that might not then be uh, able to continue to invade that particular um ecological sphere. In other words, there's just a nice way of thinking about that our, our actions have trade-offs and consequences. Our resilience is tied up, not just in what we, one system, like our individual thoughts and feelings, but it's always connected to what happens around us as well. And therefore, if you think about mental health, our mental health is going to be, if you're in an oil and gas community and whether or not your town council promotes diversification of your economy, and uh, moving, and what's actually happening in, say, Alberta, Canada, is movements towards geothermal and potentially greening energy because they're redefining their identity is changing from we are oil and gas workers to we are now energy workers. And if you're an energy worker and your identity shifts to that, then there's much more opportunity economically. And and identity is a psychological concept. If you're hanging on to a particular identity and you don't show the flexibility. Um, which is also, a, 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 think of it, a positive psychological construct that we know is related to well-being. If you don't have that adaptability or flexibility in your thinking, then you're not necessarily, necessarily going to take advantage of the new wave of green opportunities that are going to come along and potentially save your community, your family, and your psychological well-being. Right, absolutely. I've realized that um, these things are incredibly complex with no single answers. And, you know, I really appreciate what you've said for that because there are all of these systems working and they are deeply interrelated to each other and they influence each other in these ways. That's it. We are at an hour. You've answered everything. Thank you so much. (laughs) This was incredibly, like, a lot of fun. It is interesting to get people, like, when you watch, the moment I kind of got onto this and that my thinking switched over to, hey, these systems are interacting, then suddenly you see things just a little bit differently. And if I might... The best part is then the solutions are not just on all individuals to change, but suddenly we can actually affect change in many systems mm-hmm. and those have a cascade effect. And ultimately, I think that's what we're doing. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an optimist mm-hmm. because I think that now it just opens up possibilities. And I just, I just love that we're having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for coming. Huge thank, thank you, you for inviting, inviting me into this. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.